As the war in Ukraine rages on, exacting a devastating human cost, markets remain edgy. Disruptions in oil and food supplies are driving inflation. Commodity prices are fluctuating by the day and experts are warning of a significant setback to global economic growth. Closer to home, South Africans are bracing for higher petrol and food prices, while ESCOM has warned that oil price shocks could further limit already constrained electricity supplies. But it's not all bad news. In just a moment, I'll ask Neil Jivan from Investex Treasury Sales and Structuring Commodities team how the surge in commodity prices could cushion the impact on South Africa's economy. Then, Investec UK economist Sandra Horsfield mulls scenarios for the global economy and how the conflict is reshaping geopolitics. And finally, I'll ask Investec Blockchain Technologies lead Chris Becker about the role that cryptocurrencies are playing in the Ukraine war. This is no ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. Welcome. I'm Jeremy Max. We're going to start here at home. The next few months are looking fairly bleak for many South Africans. Another petrol price hike is just a few weeks away and the price of food is set to climb. But for the past year, our economy has at least been benefiting from high commodity prices and the war in Ukraine could push prices even higher in months to come. Let me welcome to the conversation now Neil Jivan from Investex Treasury Sales and Structuring Commodities team. So, Neil, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, Let me start with this. We've seen commodity prices increase some to record highs. Take us through the numbers. Yeah, sure. I think there's been just so much uncertainty with respect to many commodity uh, supply chains, uh, those that Russia is a chief supplier of globally. And we've seen across the commodity complex some record highs, as you mentioned. So we've seen nickel and aluminium reach all-time records. Point there on nickel trading last week, the London Metals Exchange actually suspended trading on nickel because of the sharp increases in pricing and fears of a lot of dealers not actually being able to make the margin payments on exchange. So unprecedented unprecedented times. Indeed. We've also seen, you know, Brent reach a record $139 a barrel a couple of weeks ago with growing fears of Western sanctions on Russian oil and gas. So we've seen the US impose sanctions and the risk is that other Western countries follow suit. And we've also seen, you know, precious metals uh, reach elevated prices with palladium reaching an all-time record of $3,400 an ounce. Russia is responsible for about 40% of global palladium production. It's a big supply of global palladium just as is South Africa. So yeah, these are some of the numbers around, but we've seen appreciation across the entire basket. All right, help me with this now if you can. I think it's fair to say this is a double-edged sword for South Africa. On the one hand, we're going to see the cost of imports rise, but on the other, we stand to benefit from higher prices for our exports. So it's a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, sure. I think we'll find that motorists will probably feel the pinch at the next uh, pump price hike when we go and fill up our cars. As we've seen, you know, oil prices have been on the surge and the average consumer will feel this at the pump when we refuel our cars, given the dependency on petrol and diesel. But we'll also find that The currency has not depreciated to the extent that you would expect from an emerging market currency to in times of crisis. We've fared relatively well, which, as you allude to, is because of the strong export base that underpins the South African economy. And also, we've seen supply disruptions to wheat, which has increased fears of food prices increasing across the world. But the fortunate thing for an economy like South Africa is that a lot of our own domestic consumption is produced locally, and there is relative ease of 
substitution between more expensive staples like wheat to less expensive staples like corn or soy, of which we produce quite a lot on a global scale. And crop estimates suggest that the most recent harvest is above historical annual averages. So hopefully we'll be relatively cushioned in this regard. And the strong currency will hopefully keep inflationary pressures slightly more contained than one would have otherwise expected if we didn't have these positive things. Let's talk about demand if we can. You referenced palladium. What then are the top commodities that are in high demand from South Africa? And I guess I should ask you which markets or regions are actually buying. South Africa's chief exports include a lot of precious metals, so palladium, platinum and rhodium, which are used primarily in the catalytic process of diesel and petrol-powered vehicles. So you'll find that there's probably robust demand on a global scale. I mean, with all of our chief trading partners in China, the US, Japan and Europe, those countries that manufacture a lot of vehicles will have a lot of the mining companies in SA selling directly to these countries and to these manufacturers. People also forget that South Africa is a exporter of iron ore and coal. And these obviously have industrial uses, even at a time when environmental and social governance is of more interest and of more importance globally. We're finding that because of big supply disruption to more naturally used fuels like gas and oil, there's been a lot of demand for coal as well. And SA exports quite a bit of this to other consumers globally. And in Africa, such as Botswana, Zambia, Mozambique, we export this to India and China, countries that are that are still early in the ESG cycle. Final question then. Let's take it, Neil, from the theory to the consequence, if we can. I'm wondering what all of this means for ordinary South Africans and ordinary South African investors. Is it just a few mining companies that are going to benefit or could there be a positive knock-on implication to a wider group of people? I think we'll see that the mining houses do indeed benefit. But uh, as we've discussed previously, we are relatively sheltered for an emerging market given our strong commodity export base. And with the currency being relatively robust compared to other emerging market peers like Turkey and Eastern European countries like Poland, we should hopefully see the inflationary pressures being relatively decent for local consumers. And that should hopefully protect our wealth through a crisis and through a war. And as we mentioned, you know, domestically, we still produce a lot of our own food. And that should hopefully cushion some of the price increases that we'll see coming to the market with wheat prices and other foods are getting more expensive, given the dependency on fuel and oil, which is also going to feed through to the inflation basket. So hopefully the average wealth of most South Africans will also be relatively preserved through these difficult times because of those things that we've just spoken about. Always crisp and to the point. Neil Jivan, thank you very much for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Perfect. Thanks, Jerry. In just a moment, we'll discuss the global economic implications of Russia's aggression in Ukraine. But just a quick reminder, a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. The International Monetary Fund is already warning that the Ukraine war will weigh on global economic growth. Inflation is high. Global supply chains already disrupted by COVID-19 are taking a further knock. And questions are even being asked about world food security. Welcome now to No Ordinary Wednesday, Sandra Horsfield. Sandra, I want to start with global growth, if we can. How have forecasts shifted due to the war in Ukraine? 
Directionally, the impact is clearly a negative at the global level. Um, that is obviously a consequence of the terms of trade shock that this will bring about. Exception clearly being commodity producers um, who are seeing benefits from the price surge. How big is this impact? That is very hard to tell at this point, simply because the situation is still so very fluid. We don't quite know uh, the contours, the extent, the duration of this. And we don't know how big the impact of everything is going to be in terms of energy price movements in particular, which have a big impact on global growth forecasts. The key message one can draw at this point, seemingly, is that the is unlikely to be a big enough hit to put the world economy back into recession. As I said, not many forecasters have actually put numbers on this at this point. One set of numbers that tried to construct a globally consistent set of numbers had a hit to GDP growth globally of half a percentage points this year as well as next year, but of course a big impact within the EU. But it can't be said that this is the definitive set of numbers. So for instance, the same set of forecasts had a range for the UK of a hit from 0.8 to 4 percentage points. So uncertainties are huge and nothing can be completely ruled out in the current circumstances. But as you speak right now, then no massive global hit right now, but we have seen an unprecedented raft of sanctions against Russia, financial penalties like the exclusion from the uh, SWIFT banking system. So there is inevitably going to be an impact on economies in Europe Europe and perhaps more regionally. Absolutely. That will be completely unavoidable. I think the first thing to note is that the share in global GDP of Ukraine and Russia is not actually that big. Ukraine is uh, less than half a percent of world GDP, Russia about three percent of world GDP. That said, of course, what is happening within those countries are very big impacts. Certainly, uh, Russia will see a very big impact as well as obviously the Ukraine. For the rest of the world, it's mainly the indirect effects through trade linkages that will have the biggest impact. Russia and the Ukraine are very big exporters of commodities. In particular, energy is crucial as far as trade with Europe is concerned. Uh, Europe gets about a quarter of its oil and over 40% of its gas from Russia. So any impacts there, both in terms of prices and in terms of volumes, will have an impact on growth. But it's not just that. Ukraine, for instance, as well as Russia, is a big exporter of other commodities such as food, and that will have impacts inside but also outside of Europe on prices. Now, what are the channels at play here, I think we first of all need to note that this is an inflation shock that is going to come to everybody. We will see reduced real purchasing power as a result of this. We will also see confidence impacts potentially on firms as well as households as a result of what is going on, which could have knocked it on effects on the amount of investment that is undertaken. The one dog that hasn't barked and we hope won't bark is that of financial contagion. That seems reasonably low for the time being, not least because central banks have learned the lessons from the financial crisis about the importance of preventing dollar shortages. What about the central banks barking then? Before the invasion, central banks had already embarked on a process of winding down stimulus and increasing interest rates as economies started to recover from the devastation, the ravages of COVID-19. Is this war going to compel any strategic change in thinking and direction? Probably not. First and foremost, 
as we said, the impact is going to be an inflationary one. And that hits at a time when we already come with well above target inflation really across all the major developed countries. And if we add to this further inflationary pressures, the urge with which to tighten policy is enhanced. That said, of course, the uncertainties about the global growth impacts and the impact this could have on the labour market, etc., is still there. So a big premium will be placed by central banks on maintaining flexibility and conditionality, as we already saw in the decision by the European Central Bank last week. So not too much commitment about exactly how the future will look from here. That said, we think we will have rate hikes by the Fed starting from this week. And we think for now, they'll stick to the plan of a series of rate hikes. We expect that to be five this year and perhaps another couple next year. The Bank of England probably also going to sanction its third rate hike in as many meetings this week. And of course, we already had the ECB, which has signaled that quantitative easing will end sooner rather than had planned in December, despite the war. So for the time being, everybody's still on track to tighten to respond to inflation. And just a final one then, and I guess a question that all economists like, what are the various models or scenarios that you're considering in a slightly longer term as this war plays out? I think everybody needs to be very humble in this current situation. That this war has taken place in the first place has come as a surprise to many seasoned geopolitical observers and military experts as well. So this is a situation that's quite hard to predict and put numbers or scenarios or timelines on. We could perhaps see a scenario where we see a relatively swift and contained war with a peace deal reached fairly soon. And perhaps there's some potential positive signals regarding some of the negotiations that are going on now. I wouldn't want to say with what probability that will be the case, but it's a possibility, in which case, of course, the consequences may be less protracted. On the other hand, there are other observers that are saying this could turn into a conflict that lasts for a decade or so, in which case we could look at scenarios where Russian energy is cut off completely also from Europe, um, causing consequences there. So it's a very difficult situation to put a handle on. What we can say, though, is in either case, longer term, there are a couple of very big shifts happening. One is that energy security is becoming a very big consideration globally now, especially in Europe. It will accelerate the move that was already in place to using renewables. Of course, that had been due to climate change considerations, but now has a further raison d'etre, if you like. And of course, that can't happen overnight. So there will be more competition for the supplies that are out there and price pressures. The other consequence is that defence spending will inevitably be higher and this will come at a cost to the public purse, which has already been weakened after COVID. And I'm going to leave it there. Economist at Investec UK, Sandra Horsfield, thank you very much for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. The conflict in Ukraine has introduced a new prop to the theatre of battle, cryptocurrency. According to Time magazine, Ukraine has spent significant sums on cryptocurrency as part of its defensive measures. Some donations to the country have also been made in cryptocurrencies. Investec Blockchain Technologies lead Chris Becker, welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. Millions of dollars flowing into Ukraine through cryptocurrencies, but Russia could also look to use currencies like Bitcoin to circumvent financial sanctions. So let's start here. Take us through what role cryptocurrencies have played and are playing in the war. 
Well, Jeremy, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are essentially money on the internet. They're protocols for moving money over the internet. Um, in the same way that both Ukraine, NATO alliance partners and Russia all have access to satellite technologies, other internet protocols are able to communicate over these protocols. They are able to use cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin to transfer and communicate in value over the internet. So fundamentally, that's what's been taking place. Where it's been difficult to donate money to, say, Ukrainians under duress with traditional currencies like rands and dollars, currencies like Bitcoin has made it incredibly easy to you know, be charitable towards Ukrainians, for example, who need funds and access to resources in order to buy goods and services, who are not able to move across borders with their bank accounts very easily, for example. Bitcoin has made this easy. But like you say, you know, uh, Russia being eliminated from the SWIFT network, Russian people are also able to continue transacting in Bitcoin. And obviously, Russia is not just one big blob of evil people. There are different actors. They're normal, peaceful, loving Russian citizens who are now also being punished and Bitcoin and other crypto technologies makes it possible for them also to try and sustain a reasonable standard of living. Chris, you referenced a SWIFT. We know that Russia can't use it right now. Are we, as a result of that, then likely to see an increase in crypto transactions from that country? Possibly. I don't know for certain, but what we've seen in other countries like Venezuela, for example, that has suffered a hyperinflation, has had tremendous currency turmoil where you know normal Venezuelans aren't able to use their domestic currency to purchase medical supplies, for example, have turned to currencies like Bitcoin in order to import medical supplies and you know have the means to pay for these things from abroad. You may see similar things happening in Russia. I don't know whether the Russian government is necessarily going to you know, give Bitcoin its blessing. But certainly I think Russian people who are under duress, who are now not able to purchase goods from abroad, for example, are able to turn to Bitcoin to do so. Just inform me, if you can, as we take a step back about amplification. Has crypto traditionally had a foothold in that broader region? Do you know if that's the case or not? It's hard to know from my perspective exactly what the sort of adoption rates are like in this region. What I do know is in the former you know, Soviet countries, countries like Estonia, Ukraine, adoption has been reasonable. When you look at counts of Bitcoin nodes, for example, so those are full clients, computers connected to the Bitcoin network, you do see adoption in these countries. The bulk of adoption, however, is in Western Europe, China, and America, I would say at this stage. Maybe this leads to you know, further adoption in, you know, Russia, Ukraine and the like as well. Time will tell. And just a final one then, inevitably, this is going to have an impact one way or another on the value of cryptocurrency, surely? I think so. I think it shows the value proposition of money that can flow over the internet as easily as messages can flow over the internet. I would also say, taking a step back, uh, it's not only events in related to the Russia-Ukraine conflict that has recently shown the value proposition of these new internet monies like Bitcoin. Also in Canada, there were protests by truckers protesting against mandates whose bank accounts and anyone who had donated to them's bank accounts had been frozen and they were locked out of access to their bank accounts and financial services. What I've noticed is many more people, you know, many people I've spoken to in the past who were expecting that things like Bitcoin was only really a currency for frontier markets, let, let us put it that way, 
suddenly it starts to make sense where the financial system can be weaponized against people and turned against them. And so it really becomes a question of freedom, not just in a place like Russia, Ukraine, but also in the rest of the world. And that seems to me people are starting to understanding the value proposition of Bitcoin as an internet money that can support people in places where there's unrest, distress and the like. So this war has actually been good for crypto because there's a greater and a wider understanding of the concept, if I'm hearing you correctly. It seems to me to be the case. We're going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, Chris Becker. Appreciate you joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Please join us again on the 30th of March as we continue to explore money trends shaping your world. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.